be a, a, a challenge for some of us to think about, but I want to spend some time uh, thinking out loud today. Uh, we did this a couple of Sundays ago where I asked you to maybe bring in something from your, um, your work situation, bring in something from your life where you feel this contributes to righteousness uh, at, at work. For instance, someone commented that uh, if, if, they don't, uh, if they don't, you need to stay a long time at work. You can't leave at 4 o'clock. You need to stay till 6 o'clock. So you have, you know, all day long righteousness. That makes sense? You can't leave the office early, right? You'd be looked down upon. Does that make sense? So I want you to track with this a little bit. So where do we sort of score points in our situation in life where something seems to be added to us, something seems to be working for us. Does that make sense? So I don't know if anyone has been thinking about this, so that we have a, a chance for you to give some input here. Um, is, there, is there any way where you begin to think about this idea where we've been looking at our, how we produce righteousness uh, on our own and feel, you can feel pretty good about yourself, okay? Does that make sense? Does anybody, anybody have a suggestion or an insight? Again, this may just like fall flat at this moment. I'll take the risk, though. Has anyone, as you've been thinking about um, how you produce sort of a, a feel that this is the way to live, and I'll, give you, I'll set you up with one, and then you can think about this. For instance, um, uh, I don't know if you've ever been to like the YMCA. You've been to the YMCA, you know? And uh, there's a, I, I'm a little bit overwhelmed when I go. I don't, I don't have a membership of the Y now, but my experience has been that there are so many rules at the Y. Have you noticed this? Like you, like you, you can't, like street shoes, you can't walk through the gymnasium with street shoes on, right? So you have to have athletic shoe righteousness. Does that make sense? So you can't bring, you can't, for instance, I remember seeing somebody take their, uh, take a chair out to watch their children swim, and you can't, you can't put chairs out by the pool. That's verboten, right? So in other words, you have all these rules, and these are, these are, these rules have a, a function at the YMCA, you know I'm saying? But if you were the one who kept all these rules, if you could remember them all, then you would sort of have a YMCA, I keep... I, I YMCA, I keep all the rules at the gym, righteousness. Does that make sense? Okay. Does anyone want to explore with me? Anything? You're, are you seeing anything out there? What helps when I keep the rule righteousness when you do it? Okay. Okay. So it's usually an area that you do pretty well in. All right. It's usually an area that you have a pretty good handle on that usually is an area where you sort of dispense a little bit of disdain, right? Okay. So we've talked about the idea that you know, one time I did marital counseling years ago, and the wife had been instructed how to load the dishwasher, and the Tupperware is not to go down where the heating element is. It's to go up on the top shelf so that the Tupperware isn't ruined. Right? And so, and then she failed to do this, and the Tupperware was ruined, and he then felt the right to, know, to really snub his wife, to give her the cold shoulder, and they hadn't really had any kind of significant conversations since that time. And there were other, other radical violations like that, 
uh, in their relationship. And so what it was was that each of them had a way of being righteous. He had Tupperware righteousness. Everybody understand? Okay. So he had never committed the universal crime of ruining Tupperware. Okay? So, um, so what I want to explore with you today is to be, to be aware that this is sort of the knee-jerk way we, we, we act and react to our world. Um, and again, I'll take a confession. Just raise your hand at any point. You know, just kind of, even in, tw- in 15 minutes, you suddenly have one. I'll, I'll, I'll stop what I'm doing, okay? So um, it's just a, it's a funny way we are. And if, if I could commend to you anything from this series, if you could have a takeaway, or two years from now, you're, you're thinking of one thought from this series, it would be this idea of how are you manufacturing some sense of righteousness where Jesus is okay, but not vital. Where this really makes your life come together and you feel good about your, your life. In other words, Jesus is certainly important, but this also works for you. See, I, I really want to go after this sense of righteousness and, and to be sort of defeated in this area and say, you know what, I'm giving up all these attempts in order to deeply appreciate the righteousness of Jesus, okay? Uh, so let me, let me pray for us, and then we'll, uh, we'll get into Galatians 4. So, Father, thank you for this moment. Um, this is a, a vitally important moment in, in the life of your people. Father, I do pray that I could get out of the way, uh, that I could just serve the text, serve your purposes, and, uh, and, and Father, that Christ could be present in this room. Uh, we would all be honored. Um, Father, may you uh, work among us today and that we could see the many challenges that we have, could we identify with the Galatians, and then discover how deeply you have loved us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Okay, so Galatians is this, this letter uh, from a friend who was the planter of the church. This is the Apostle Paul, and he greatly loves these people. Um, and what has happened to these people is that they have now been influenced by what are nicknamed Judaizers. They have come along, and they have come to the region of Galatia, we would call this modern-day Turkey, and they have come to this area, and they have now come with this insistence that to be a good Christian, you have to adhere to Jewish customs and laws. Isn't that strange? It strikes us as almost bizarre. And the Galatians have demonstrated that they are insecure in their understanding of the gospel, and they have latched on to these teachers, and they have now begun to adhere to their teaching. So Paul has been contrasting his teaching with these false teachers. That is called legalism, by the way. Whenever you're adding, it's Jesus plus this makes me okay. So whenever you're adding something to Jesus, 
Jesus plus this makes, me, makes God shine his smile upon me. This maintains my relationship with God. This is working for me. It's making me fully acceptable to God. If you're thinking that way, which is a, a way that many Christians uh, think, you're engaging in some form of legalism. Now, so Paul has been contrasting his teaching in the gospel, what the gospel is, with the teaching of the false teachers, and now he's contrasting the false teacher's ministry with his ministry. So this is a very interesting and beautiful portion of God's word where we begin to get the feel for Paul, the feel for his love, the feel for what it was like to see the Galatians in relationship to Paul, and then we get to see what legalism does in a relationship. What legalism does among Christians and the tragic consequences uh, of legalism. So it's a, it's a remarkable passage, um, and it's a very heartfelt passage. So as we look at this, in verse 8, the Apostle Paul begins to teach them these words. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. See that verse 8? He has used the word enslaved a couple of times. In verse 3, he talks about how they were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Paul is saying to the Galatians, he's sort of setting them up to help them understand how far they have fallen from understanding the gospel. He's helping them understand that what they were doing prior to their relationship to Christ, they were submitting themselves to hopes, dreams, aspirations, and treating these hopes, dreams, and aspirations in a religious way. They were bowing down to things that are not gods, but the feel for it was as if they were experiencing a god. So he's pointing out to them that they have a tendency, and this is their pre-Christian days, they were enslaved to their aspirations, hopes, etc., And they were bowing down to idols. But Paul says there are no other gods. So an idol really doesn't represent another god. But it feels like there's another god. And he's setting up how they were freed from that enslaving tendency. And then he sets up in verse 9, he says this. He says... But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves, that's the key word, whose slaves you want to be once more? The weak and worthless things of the world. Now that's a lot of things, by the way. That's a pretty general statement, isn't it? 
the weak and worthless things of the world. Well, whatever you have set your heart upon, whatever aspiration or hope that you would love to have experienced in your life, compare that, maybe that's an incredible experience, maybe that is uh, a lot of money, maybe that's a lot of prestige, maybe that's a, a lot of personal peace, maybe that's a lot of whatever, you fill in the blank. Paul says, we bow down to those things, we are enslaved to those things, and they are, comparing compared to the gospel, worthless. They will never do for you what the gospel will do. And his shock and amazement is, he's the one who founded this church. He's the one who first discipled them in the gospel. They've been impressed by this other group of teachers, and Paul is amazed that they actually want to go back to some other form of enslavement. One thing for us to pause at this moment and to think about, because we live in a very therapeutic age, where we believe that our upbringing has so shaped our life today that it is the all-encompassing way in which I view my life. I want you to think about how, how you, if you are a Christian here today, I want you to think about how you thought of your former life. Do you, do you think in terms of enslavement? Is that in your category? Do you have a rather light view of your previous life? Perhaps it was just mistakes, some choices that weren't smart, some wisdom I, I just didn't have. When you became a Christian, you were introduced to true freedom. And what we are talking about today is, can be characterized by two very important words, power and freedom. And they are the Galatians now going back to a form of enslavement. Now for them, strangely enough, it looked like Adhering to, I mean, for our ears, I say, not for them, but it it looked like adhering to seasons, days, years, the calendar that was important for the Jewish year, the festivals, they were now embracing the whole deal in order to be accepted by God, so they thought, as believers. Everybody tracking? And so Paul is going after a huge subject, and the subject is called enslavement. And what we are trying to be honest about in this series is that each of us have these tendencies. It's a very brave person who understands these things, and my my appeal to you is that you would wrestle with yourself because you and you alone by God's word opening your heart, I think you and you alone can become aware of what is enslaving you, and there can be an an honesty there. How do I know I'm enslaved? Usually it relates to something like your emotional life. How am I responding to when 
the area that I feel I'm righteous in, when uh, I have built up my reputation, I am so-and-so, this is my status at work, and someone doesn't treat me like I am supposed to be treated, you can discover what's vitally important to you and what you may be deriving righteousness from by how you are treating others as they mess with your righteousness machine. And so my exhortation to you is to begin to realize, open up your heart and say, Lord, I think this is the struggle. Now, I want you to know that... um, Our intent in preaching here is simply to communicate the means of grace to you. Uh, I don't have it together. Those of you who know me, uh, uh, closely know me, you could, please don't say anything on that at this point, okay? Uh, I don't have it together. I have this, uh, um, I have a, 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 the recovery of my legalisms is just beginning. I've been a believer for over 30 years, but the recovery of my legalisms, it's, I'm like an onion inside, and I keep, you get one layer, you get deeper and deeper and deeper. I'll give you, I'll give you a story. Uh, we have, uh, the elders approved a, an expense that was outside of the budget. Uh, that's important to do. And uh, we, if you want to go over and see this beautiful refrigerator that we bought, this was a major event in church history. Uh, we bought a new fridge. So uh, Bailey uh, ex- executed this perfectly, got the Sears people over here, and uh, it's, over, it's right next door over here. So after church, go over and just stare at it. Okay. So um, brand new fridge. Now who's, who's, uh, whose fridge is it? It's the church's. Is it the school's? No. <laughs> Where is it? Well, it's over there with all these little grimy hands, these preschoolers. Do these preschoolers respect our fridge? There's going to be some kid who's going to take some, you know, some crayon. Boom. Right down, right? I have refrigerator righteousness. Don't mess. See, I'll put, what I'll do is I'll be like the YMCA director. I'll put rules all over it. No children within five feet. Church fridge, back off. She goes, well, now am I the only one who is legalistic like this? Do you know that there's someone in the preschool staff who drinks Diet Coke and they put one Diet Coke in our fridge? And you know what? I like Diet Coke. And I've opened that up and I look at it and go, violation. You know what? I can drink that Coke. Because you know what? It's in our fridge. Some of you looking at me like, I can't be. Pastor, you're not that holy, are you? Do you feel this in your, in your emotional life, in, in the way you interact with people, in, in, in the way you... Per, what, what are things to you what are your aspirations? You see, as I go deeper into my, my issues, I have aspirations of perfection. See what I'm saying? Aspirations of perfection. 
on the Myers-Briggs. Uh, I took the Myers-Briggs on my sabbatical. And uh, I found out, based on my personality, what are the stressors in my life? Do you know what one of the stressors in my life is? When I don't get respect. How about that? That's, Richard, that stresses me out when I don't get respect. You give me lots of respect. I don't get respect. That's, so, so I could take this whole Myers-Briggs understanding of my personality and begin to realize that I only surround myself with people who respect me. Well, good luck, good luck with that in ministry. In other words, my point is, is that we can create legalisms quicker than we can destroy them. While you're discovering one legalism, we got Pastor Todd with the refrigerator and the Diet Coke. Pastor Todd has created three more. Does that make sense? We should cry out to God, I am a mess. I am allergic to the righteousness that I'm given through Jesus. I'm allergic to it. In fact, if we could have brutal honesty, we'd say, I don't want it. It's abstract. Where, where is it? I can't feel it. It's outside of me. I can only access it by faith. It feels distant. And you know what feels really powerful? is having beautiful Tupperware. That feels powerful. I can feel the power of order. Can you feel it? I feel that power of a clean, beautiful kitchen. And anyone who messes with the clean, beautiful kitchen or our clean, beautiful refrigerator, we now become the lords of legalism. Because we are after something that we believe will work for us. Folks, you are in a major battle. I don't know if you're aware of this or not. One of the most influential and bright insightful individuals God has given the church, at least in this modern era, is a man named Francis Schaeffer. And Francis Schaeffer, he's one of these guys, in 1965, he could, he could tell you what's going to go on in 1985. In other words, not with absolute precision, but he was just bright about the future. Francis Schaeffer said, in the 1970s, he said of the 60s generation, they basically just gave up. All the protests and all the, you know, whatever, the, the summer of love and all that stuff and Woodstock and all that, you know, it's all, we're all just going to create a, you know, imagine all the people, all that stuff. We gave up on that. What are the new aspirations of baby boomers and those who follow? Two things. It's Francis Schaeffer. Personal peace and affluence. See, for some of us, you, th- you might think it's ridiculous that you, someone would try to be religious and keep some season or festival like the Galatians were doing. We think, what on earth that, that's all about? What we are is we're disengaged. We are after personal peace. It's a low-grade cynicism whereby we are choosing carefully what works for us. What works for us. Largely disengaged. 
largely uninvolved, able to create our own world. We're bowing down, not to some Jewish festival or tradition or hope in that religion. Our religion is ourselves. Our religion is internal, self-oriented religion. Very hard to detect. But I do want to, I want to commend you. I want to exhort you. Preaching is a means of grace. See? You don't need to have to be super surrendered to Jesus. You don't need to be super committed, super committed to Jesus. You don't need to do anything other than listen to the means of grace that God's providing now to engage in the means of grace. Someone mentioned small groups. Prayer. Scripture. God is for you. I want you to hear that. It's not a question of you getting motivated, picking yourself up by your bootstraps and just getting really, really strong in your will and busting through all this, this, these problems. Only through the means of grace will God give you hope in Jesus. Your heart has to be made warm in Jesus. Your insecurities are so massive. If you have a pastor who's known Jesus for 30 plus years and he freaks out about a Diet Coke, I need help, folks. But it will not come by just sheer willpower. It will not come by someone just putting pressure on my heart. What's the matter with you, man? What's up with you, man? It will come from my heart being warmed to the God who is so massively generous with me that a Diet Coke doesn't matter. My Bible says that the meek will inherit what? The earth. I'm already, according to Galatians 4-7, I'm already an heir. I'm already a son this, this whole place is mine. Everything around here. Keep walking. Go to whatever continent. You, by faith in Jesus, is, this is what you will inherit. The new heaven and the new earth. How does that compare to your silly 12 ounces of chemical liquid? So what I, I want to commend you to you this idea when you discover your Diet Coke affections that rule your heart and make you mean, you got a friend in me. You got a friend in Nathaniel. You got a friend in the elders. You got a friend in your small group leader. When you begin to discover, wait a minute, this is why I'm angry at my wife. This is why I'm, this is why, I mean, I mean it's, a, it's a righteousness problem. But her personality, huh? You mean it's, it's, I have a worship problem with God, first and foremost. Yes. Okay, so, so help me now. Help me understand. If you would begin to explore this, begin to have, be vulnerable, you will find God giving you his grace in truckloads. I have not come to call the well. I've come to call the sick. Scotty Smith says we've got to get over our, our, our 
pretending and are posing. Pretending and are posing. Why? So you can access the righteousness that's in Christ versus the righteousness that's found in some refrigerator. Folks, I want you you to take this. I want you to take this ball and run with it. I want you to begin to wrestle with yourself, journal with this, get your Bible out. What is my issue? What's going on? And you have friends to do it. This is our, we are under construction and and non-believers are watching us. They're watching us because what they expect when they come into church is squeaky clean pretense. I've been there, done that. Right. I see that. I've been there. So let me uh, explore the rest of, uh, of this Galatians passage. Look at this. Verse 10, there's the issue. I got, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. I'm going to come back to that verse. You did me no wrong. Basically, Paul's saying this to the Galatians. You can feel my tone, can't you? My tone isn't coming because I've been waiting for an opportunity to just thump on you because you offended me when I visited. You were gracious and loving. I experienced the love of God through you. You did me no wrong. That's what he's trying to communicate. Verse 13. You know it was because of bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Some theorize that Paul had an an eye ailment. Uh, I don't know, we don't know for sure, but he does refer here later, he says that in verse 15, he says, I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Uh, I don't know. We don't know what was going on. But Paul arrived in a condition of suffering. He was not a beautiful-looking apostle. (laughs) Uh, He was struggling, and something about his appearance was unattractive. And that didn't bother the Galatians at all, because they were happy. They didn't have to have an apostle who looked good. They were so glad to have an apostle who spoke the gospel to them. That's it. So Paul experienced the love of the gospel through uh, the Galatians. And they actually gave him honor. They gave him honor. Okay. Then look at verse 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Now here's what's happened. They were able to accept Paul when his appearance was difficult. But now, Paul senses they can't accept him because his tone is difficult. And uh, I will tell you that it is difficult in ministry to talk directly 
and heart to heart with God's people. It is, some people are remarkably teachable. But here is the effect of, of legalism where someone is holding a standard against someone else and the person has somehow failed them, which is possible, and it has now changed the tone. The gospel is lost and law is now dictating the relationship. Just like the Tupperware guy who no longer had to deal with his wife lovingly, because she had violated his law, she got the consequences of his law giving, which was a difficult, scornful attitude toward her. Now notice the goals of the false teachers. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. In other words, they are trying to find groupies. They flatter you in order that you would praise them. They are fundamentally insecure and need the affirmation of other people. The reason why they want followers is to affirm them. Paul now gives the purpose of his ministry. Notice this. He says, My little children, verse 19, for whom I again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. The false teachers want followers and groupies to affirm them. Christ could care less about followers and groupies. I mean, excuse me, Paul could care less about followers and groupies. He wants to function like a mother until Christ is born in them. He wants them to be, as you mothers have experienced, you want your child to live on their own, to no longer be dependent on you, but to begin to walk on their own and feed themselves. This is what a minister is to do. I am not your priest. This is not about you becoming my groupies. This is about me getting out of the way as quickly as possible in order for you to access Christ. And there's a huge difference between coming to church and coming to Christ. And this is vitally important for a ministry. This is, this is not about... Uh, this is not about an extension of my aspirations and hopes or vision for my life. You, you are not an extension of my self-improvement project. And if you ever sense that, I would ask that you would tell me directly and honestly. And in ministry, if Christ is not the motive, you, you can pretty much pick it up. You can feel it. You can sense it. It's funny about legalism and uh, how we treat people. You sort of feel it first, and then you kind of cognitively kind of think it through. I think this is what's going on. You sort of feel it first. I am in anguish. If you want to be involved in ministry, and by the way, I would, I would really exhort you. There's 27 books in the New Testament. Uh, I would really exhort you to, to know a couple of them really, really well. Where you could disciple over coffee, just talk with a friend. You could walk through this as a couple, small group. You would know the book of Galatians well and 
the process is, and guys, I mean, ladies, I can't. <laughs> Just the Bible tells me to use this as an illustration. I have no idea what it means to give birth. But for whatever that might translate for men in the room, is difficult. And to bring someone to grow in maturity in Christ is difficult. But the grace that God gives us for that is sufficient. And Paul longs to stop communicating in some letter, not as if this letter is not adequate. He wants to be there personally with them and then I'm done. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Verse 12, real quickly. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. What Paul did was, when he visited Galatia, he was a Jew by upbringing. He was very, very flexible. He came and he moved into the neighborhood where the Galatians were. He became as they were. And this tells us something about what Jesus did for us. Jesus came into our neighborhood and he became as we are. He took on your flesh. He became flexible in his approach to reaching you, you see. This calls us out of our legalisms. This calls us to be flexible in relational connection to other people, to move into their neighborhood a bit, empathize, extend the grace that's needed to understand them. Jesus did this for you. Jesus became embodied in human flesh in order to reach you. And he didn't move into the squeaky clean, beautiful neighborhood, the gated community. He moved into the bad part of town. Where we were. And he he made his home with us. And he reached us. He became flexible in in his method in order to reach us. This is the love of God for us, to release us from our many, many legalisms. I am a fellow struggler with you. May God use his word powerfully among us that Christ will be in our midst and formed in us. Let's pray. Father, I, I, I pray for more than just...